This is episode 11 of Talking With, Brian Lamb's conversation with historian Richard Norton Smith. It starts after this. Why didn't you get a PhD? Because a lot of people think you're a doctor. Oh, I know. I know. Well, I always quote Barbara Tuckman, um, the late, great Barbara Tuckman, who, who once bravely admitted that she said the best thing that ever happened to her was that she did not get a PhD in history. And the reason very simply was she wanted to write for more than historians. She wanted to reach what used to be called the general educated reader. You know, America is in real danger of losing middle-brow culture. And and I suppose maybe I'm most comfortable. It's to you know they watch PBS, and uh, they 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 uh, they they're au courant with the theater, uh, and they know what books are on the bestseller list. And uh, uh, anyway, that's, that's middle brow. I think so. Yeah. What's uh, highbrow? And 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 and, and they're public intellectuals. David McCullough. And I'm not saying David McCullough is middle brow. Um, he's a very, very fine, rigorous scholar. But he obviously has great popular appeal. And I suspect, never talked to him about it, um, that he values that, that he, he works toward that, that he certainly sees that as a legitimate measure of success. The whole point, for people like me, I guess, of working as hard as I do... I'd, is to reach a mass audience. And I don't mean mass just in terms of numbers or commercial sales. I mean, look, the one thing we, I think, can agree on is there's a, a hole in this country where civic education used to be. Um, I think the fragmenting of the culture, the coarsening of the culture... Uh, there are a number of factors that contribute to it. Um, and I think middle-brow culture, in some ways, is one of the casualties of of that. Omnibus. I mean, I remember as a six-year-old kid watching Alistair Cook host Omnibus. What was it? On Sunday afternoons. It was a forerunner of 60 Minutes, but it was a, it was a cultural program. When did Bernstein's Young People's Concerts? I can remember as a kid on Sunday afternoons watching Leonard Bernstein conduct a seminar as well as the New York Philharmonic. And nobody, you know, that was par for the course. That's what television delivered. Commercial television. It had a sense of of responsibility, which brings us to our long-running dispute about Mr. Paley, the the, who, who was a genius of middle-brow culture. Because Mr. Paley, on the one hand, who was he? and CBS, William S. Paley, of sainted memory, the man who, who largely created the Columbia Broadcasting System and who had an inordinate influence on the particularly early days of television. Before, before we uh, leave it, go back to the... You say you read Main Street every, every year, every summer. You still do it? No, actually, I don't. Because there are so many books, you know. But I want to ask if you do anything else like that on a regular basis. I read Willa Cather. 
over time or I mean frequently but but see there are books that you shouldn't read until you reach a certain point in life how many adolescents are spoon-fed Hemingway Um, particularly for the wrong reasons because the words are simple and therefore it's the, the story and the emotions and the and the motives must be simple um I never read a word of Hemingway until I was 45 years old. And then the Hemingway Centenary was in uh, 1999, and I read everything he wrote. And not only that, I read everything he wrote, and then I went and visited his birthplace, and then I went all the way out to Idaho to pay my respects at his gravesite, not far from the house where he ended his life in July 1961. And and I came away from that intense immersion in Hemingway, I think, with a much better insight, appreciation, whatever. Now, I don't, I mean, there's still a lot I have to learn about Hemingway. Um, interestingly enough, there's not very much Hemingway I'd want to read again. I'm glad I did. It was valuable. I, I think I understand the cult uh, and all of that. On the other hand, Unfortunately, the tragedy of Hemingway, I'm more interested in Hemingway biographically almost than I am as a writer of fiction. I mean, how Hemingway, who had real, real genius, became corrupted by celebrity. That's a story. That's a story in some ways greater than any story he ever wrote. Why? Because it's a story of the 20th century. It's a story of, uh, it's the modern Garden of Eden. It's the temptation that exists in our modern, shallow, shabby, throwaway, temporary culture. Did it ever hit you? I'd like to say no. Uh, I mean, <laughs> and I think the evidence is, I, I, I mean, I am, I am appropriately obscure. Um, I never was a networker. I never spent time, and again, I don't, you know, I'm only speaking for myself. I'm not. I'm not even being implicitly critical of anyone else. But we all know there are people in the city, in Washington, who very effectively, and very appropriately, from their perspective, uh, spend a lot of time, for lack of a better word, networking. Um, and it's good for their career, and that may very well be good for the culture. Why haven't you? One, I'm not very good at it. Two. I'm somewhat contemptuous. There's a wonderful Somerset Mom novel called Cakes and Ale. And if you read nothing else, I read Cakes and Ale every year. There's a brilliant, scathingly, coruscatingly <laughs> brilliant portrait of literary careerism um, based on a real, a real contemporary of Mom's, a man named Horace Walpole. But the character is named Alroy Keir. And um, basically, the story is Alroy Keir has been approached by the widow of a late author, the great man of letters. Um, and she wants him to write his biography. Unfortunately, there's a few messy details involving uh, his first wife uh, and their affair and the fact that she ran away from him and I mean, and and you know, before he was the grand old man of letters, he was the uh, 
uncouth um, uh, figure uh, who would would never be admitted to a gentleman's club, um, let alone thought of as the uh, quintessential um, literary figure of his time. And Alroy Keir, of course, who doesn't care about facts, he only cares about advancing his own interests, his sales, uh, probably his speaking fees in a modern context. Anyway, Alroy Keir is, is um, for him, the truth is, a, is an inconvenient element that he can brush aside uh, without ever bothering him. He appears to be a man without a conscience. But it's, it's, it's just brilliantly funny, very British. I'm a great fan of Somerset Maugham. I, I think he's an underestimated writer. Where was he from and when did he write? He, um, he was actually born in Paris. Um, his father was in the diplomatic corps. Um, he moved early uh, to to um, to live with an uncle, uh, rather loveless household, uh, with an uncle and aunt, um, who became recurring figures in his fiction. His great novel that most people know is of human bondage, and it's very thinly autobiographical, and in it. The mom figure, his name is Philip Carey, uh, and his cross to bear is he has a club foot. Mom didn't have a club foot, but mom was short, ugly, he spoke with a stammer, and he was gay. Um, and uh, he married uh, a woman, um, it was a disaster, he had a daughter. Uh, which wasn't a whole lot more successful. But um, he wrote this extraordinary novel, which, again, I think adolescents are often fed. I'm, I'm not sure you shouldn't wait. It's, it's about the perversity of attraction. Uh, Philip Carey uh, is a man who, as I say, has this impediment um, which undoubtedly calls into attraction, uh, calls into question his own sense of attraction. And he meets this waitress, Mildred, who is by any conventional standard unattractive, uh, used to be word slatternly, uh, which would apply to her. Betty Davis famously portrayed her in the, in the first movie brilliantly. Um, and she despises Philip Carey for the extent of his need. He needs her. And it's, it's a very perverse, uh, in the truest sense of the word, um, relationship of people who um, should repel each other and indeed to some degree do repel each other, and yet they find they're, they're, they're drawn to one another. It's a, it's a complex psychological novel. It's a tragic novel about... The Perils of Love, which also opens a window on mom's view. Uh, after all, his own life experience, he'd, uh, he'd in, in some ways been... There, there is a real Mildred. Mildred was based on a real person. Um, and so it, it's a classic case of, of an author mining his own experience, his own unhappiness, his own sense of inadequacy. Um, and that's 
Think how brave that is. I mean, that's that's courageous to take to take a story as unflattering of oneself and and to put it out there. And um, that's it's a great book. And but anyway, but Mom wrote wrote a number of great books. How does well you could in reflection of what you've just been talking about, stuff you've pulled out of the air about Somerset Maugham or, <clears throat> or Hemingway, but how do historians, and I ask this because I've listened to this for years and years, <laughs> how do historians, or start with you, of course, yeah. remember all this? Do you have any idea? Is there, is there a now, way I to do it? I, you know, it's a, it's a very fair question, and I wish I had uh, an answer. Uh, um, I think that some people, just as we're born with deficiencies, as you know, I don't drive a car, uh, would never get close to driving a car, and, I, and many people think that's a that's going to be some sort of phobia or or a shortcoming. It's certainly a, a departure from the norm. Um, we were talking about networking. One reason I don't network is I'm not, I wouldn't be very good at it. People think I'm an extrovert, and I'm not an extrovert. Um, and the older I get, the less extroverted I am. I, I would make a very good 14th century monk, I think. And, and the equivalent is sitting in an apartment in Grand Rapids, immersing myself in a in a life of Gerald Ford. Um I don't know about other forms of literature. Writing can be a monkish existence. But how do you remember? All I can say is, I can't explain it. I can only describe it. Uh, as as long as I remember, um, I've had a particular kind of memory. I mean, I don't know. I, you know, I've never called it photographic. Um, I, and I'm not sure what a photographic memory is. All I know is there's a heightened. What I said a few minutes ago. I'm convinced. I'm convinced that if you're doing something you love to do, if you're doing something that really engages you intellectually, emotionally, if you're looking forward to an experience, uh, and then you're you're immersed in that experience, I'm convinced you operate at a different level of efficiency, of ability. And yes, of memory. Did any teacher of yours in your life try to teach you how to remember? No. no. Didn't have to. Do you, just, before you speak before a group, do you go and spend a couple of days reading up on certain subjects? Well, <clears throat> no. I mean, it depends on the group. I mean, actually, I put, you have to remember, I'm an old speechwriter. And I put a lot of effort into crafting a text. And, and making sure that it's individualized. I mean, there's nothing worse. We've, you know, we've all heard them, and they and they can be very successful. But you know, there are people who give the same speech, basically, before diverse audiences, um, and do it for years and years and years. And, and you know, that's fine. Um, I would find that really boring. I mean, particularly as I get older, I, I welcome the intellectual challenge of creating something that's unique for this particular audience, this particular event. I mean, they're owed 
that, it seems to me, on the part of the speaker. You you have an obligation, not just to tell them something. Um, well, to, well let, to, let's, let's get an example. <clears throat> you gave the eulogy, at, uh, a eulogy at both Betty Ford's funeral and at Gerald Ford's funeral. Yeah. How much time did you spend and how did you go about preparing for those eulogies? Um, I don't know how you prepare for it. I think, um, in, in a way, in the case of President Ford, I, I worked on a draft months in advance of his passing for the reason that I did not want to be caught at the worst possible time um, when my own emotions were involved um, and and run the risk of not doing your best possible work. And so that's something that I wrote in draft form probably six months before he passed. How long did it take you to get to the draft form? Hours, you know, days. just full-time couple of days? Oh, yeah, yeah, a few days. And you because, write... Because how- I mean, you go through... I mean, I, I, you know, you don't write books, you rewrite books. And that's true for me with speeches. It's a different kind of writing. Uh, a speech, I'm a victim of my own facility. Uh, I used to type, peck, with two fingers. And I could do 60, 65 words, uh, you know, and that... But the, I could write a speech. I could bang out a speech in an hour. I have written eulogies in... Oh, I'll tell you my story. Um, it's been now probably 10 or more years. I was out at the Dole Institute, and I got a call... Lawrence, Kansas. In Lawrence, Kansas, from Senator Dole. Actually, from his, from his office. And um, he had a favor to ask. He needed a speech. He needed a eulogy. Madam Chiang Kai-shek had died. I think she was 106. Okay. Well, you know, Madam Chiang had not been in the news a lot uh, lately. So the conventional sort of uh, clips as a source were not really available. Um, Turned out that uh, she was going to be um, eulogized at uh, St. Bartholomew's Church uh, next to the Waldorf. Uh, in New York, uh, same place where um, President Hoover's funeral was held. And um, what I didn't know at the time was that the ceremony was going to be half in Chinese and half in English. Two people had been asked to give eulogies, Bob Dole and Paul Simon, senator from Illinois, who, as a child, was the son of Chinese missionaries. So... You know, you learn something new every day. So anyway, um, I think truth be told, Dole was asked because in those days he and his law firm were working with the Taiwanese government. I don't know. I have never asked him. All I know is I, I, I needed, he needed within 24 hours an acceptable, suitably heartfelt eulogy of Madame Chiang Kai-shek. Um, and I wrote it in an hour. Uh, I just sat down and, you know, um, I think I looked at one book. But, you know, there are, there are times 
<laughs> oddly enough, I won't call it inspiration, but you know there are jobs, you know, that basically you know without being told what the occasion requires. Richard Norton Smith is an American historian and author. You can listen to more interviews with him by searching his name in the video library at cspan.org.